From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We've heard so much about the curve in reference to this pandemic, and today I'm talking with a medical sociologist who can help us understand what's important to know about that curve and some of the other maps and projections about which we're hearing. Talking with me via web conferencing is Dr. Christopher Morley. He's Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Morley. Nice to see you again, Emma. So we've seen so many maps lately with different curves on them. Which one can we believe? Oh, well, that's that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, one of the things that I think we have to think about when we look at curves is that uh, they keep being referred to as predictions. And for public use, I think what we need to do is reframe the conversation as curves being possibilities about what happens under a set of given assumptions. So for example, when we see the, the curves that are being shown as predictions for our county, that's prediction. those are predictions based upon what happens, say, in a worst case scenario where people fail at social distancing and have an outbreak that begins called exponential growth. That means instead of adding a few cases a day, you start exploding and adding multiples of cases every day. And that's, that's what happened in New York and that's what happened in Milan. And there's a, a number that gets thrown around in the literature that I wanted to break down and that's called the R value. The R value is the reproduction rate of pathogens, the rate at which new people uh, become infected by, by, by an individual. And that how many of, people that that person could infect. Correct. Yes. But even and, that, isn't that based on like if one person is sick and they live in a household with one other person and don't go out, they're only going to be able to infect one person. But if that infected person goes to a party, they can infect everyone there, right? Right. So the R value, a lot, a lot goes into an R value, and really an R value is, is an observed behavior of a pathogen. When we see, for example, that, that a pathogen spreads by bodily fluids or by touch, that's going to uh, impact how, how a pathogen spreads through community, whereas if it spreads via respiratory droplets. So there's, there's biological activity, on, and, and as well as how long a person stays uh, infectious but not but asymptomatic. Those are those are attributes of the of the virus. The other thing, though, as you as you just surmised correctly, is that the the, the rate at which people are contacting one another, regardless of the means of transmission of the virus, if people avoid getting into situations where it's transmitted, that's going to lower the R as well. And that's what we're doing now as a massive social exercise. So in addition to that R value, though, there's some other data that you need to, to go into to be able to make these predictions, right? Correct. So the R values we use are often based on what we've seen in other cities uh, or other counties or other nations. So, for example, when we first were, were predicting very dire uh, forecasts, we were looking at places like Milan. Um, but the, the, the rate at which people are actually socially distancing is important. So, for example, uh, in northern Italy, this, the, the, the society did not socially distance quickly enough. In a place like New York State, where, um, where we responded to the beginning of the epidemic in New York City, but when you responded as an entire state, uh, 
the upstate communities may have benefited from those that that that, that rapid action. So you see explosive growth in the city and its suburbs, but upstate we've managed to to uh, not quite hit that curve yet because we distanced at the same time when they were in the middle of their beginning of, of their their upward trend, we were still in in our nascent phase. The other thing that is important is the size of the population when we look at these curves. Not just the raw size of the population, but how many people in the population are actually uh, susceptible to the illness. Because as the curve proceeds, more and more people will have the virus and develop antibodies. And we hear a lot about antibody testing. More and more people uh, will recover. And eventually, like you said, uh, if people are completely asusceptible because they're not in contact, if they manage, if some people manage to social distance, there's some argument to be said that they might not count towards the total. So our curves, when you see these curves, they are predictions of a, of a possibility of what happens if we, if we, uh, like you said, go to that party. Um, because right now, what we think is there are probably there's certainly COVID in the community, and we see evidence of that. That's that's plain. We are still on an upward trend. We're not explosively growing, but we are still on an upward upward uh, growth rate of, of of new cases. But it's here, and all it takes for for there are basically the, the analogy is that there are embers everywhere, and you don't know which one is going to start the fire. And if we were to suddenly all return to normal living, for example, we believe that some of those curves you see that are dramatic are what would happen in that case. And what we're actually seeing now is a result of people actually doing um, doing some work on social distancing. Now we're not probably not doing enough, to be honest. Uh, the, the, the company called Unicast is putting out our grades. Uh, the last grade I saw put Onondaga County at about a C plus and some of our neighboring counties much lower. And so we can do better. But I think that's one message. We can certainly make sure that we are, we are maintaining physical distances to the extent possible. Well, let me I ask think- you this. I don't mean to interrupt, but comparing us like with what's happening in New York City, and we see the numbers so high there, is that because of their density? There's just so many people that it they can't distance enough to make a difference. That's that's probably uh, probably a part of it. There, there, you certainly have a massive population there. It's also a travel hub. You have a lot of people coming and going. Uh, New York City is starting to start. Not the, the, the emergency is not over. When people hear it's tapering, it means that at least the the growth has stopped. You still have a lot of cases. You're still getting cases every day. It doesn't mean. That the faucet is 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 turned off. It just means in the arc when you're turning the flow on, it's starting to maybe lessen a little bit. But that's it's still an emergency there. But what's happening is that it is starting to to respond to the, what distancing they could do. But the initial outbreak uh, certainly was due to density and and the, just the amount of throughput, the amount of travel. I mean, you've got three major airports flying in and out of New York City. You've got it's a, it's a hub for all sorts of activity. And what you're seeing now is that where it's where it's hit, it's it's spiking now are in the New York City suburbs. Um, yeah. Well, compared um, to the last pandemic a uh, hundred years ago, the 1918 Spanish flu, one of the things that's different or new for this pandemic is the availability of cell phone data. What have you been able to learn from that? That's been helpful. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So that is the what I referred to before is the Unicast data. If people wanted to look online and find Unicast, U-N-A-C-A-S-T, they can see county ratings. And uh, initially, 
because our numbers were low, we weren't seeing early correlations between the unicast data, which is the cell phone data. It's, it's seeing how close people are to one another, how much they're moving, how, how what kind of distances they're traveling, um, and how, how often cell phones are coming into contact with one another. Um, uh, early on, we weren't seeing tight correlations, but with a little bit more data, we're going to be able to see whether uh, the grades that unicast gives us uh, correlate with spikes probably eight, eight or so days later. But we're watching that closely and more to come on that, that, that front. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Chris Morley, the Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. So there's maps out there that show the actual numbers of people infected in various towns in Onondaga County. I'm sure this is available for the other counties as well, along with a calculation of what percent of that population has been infected. Is that too much information for us, or, or does it serve a purpose? Well, I, I think um, if we go from the perspective that all information is good, it serves a purpose in knowing that it's real. Um, I think we, we should caution our listeners to see into thinking that because the numbers seem so small that this isn't a problem. And there were a few points I wanted to make with that, if I may. The first is that those small cases represent the fact not that we are we don't have a problem here, but that the viruses in our community, we're not going through not just the inconvenience, but the actual suffering people are feeling. We don't do that, but those small numbers will become large numbers and will impact us all. So the suffering people are, are feeling right now is worth it because if you're on the map as, as having cases, it's worth, it's, it's worth avoiding. The second thing that I wanted to say is that if you see that it's in your community, understand that this is not just about COVID, that those spikes don't just represent, say, the argument that we're going to just get through it and get it over with. If we do something like that, like let everybody get infected and let what happens happens, people will die, of course, but the bigger issue at this moment is that they'll overwhelm the health system. And that's not just about COVID, that's about the entire health system. If you need an emergency appendectomy, if you have a car accident, you don't want your health system overwhelmed. So this is truly about all of us. And the curves are as much about what happens in the population and most people getting it and, get, and developing antibodies and moving on. It's about what that spike will do because some part of that population, and we're still trying to figure out how much of that percentage is. I wouldn't want to quote a number on air because that number keeps moving because this is a brand new virus, but some population will need to be hospitalized and that will absorb resources that everybody needs. So how do you explain to someone what harm they may be doing if they gather with their friends to go for a canoe ride or if they go pair up with friends to go shopping because some of the stores are still open? How do you explain to them how that's not, not good? Well, one thing that I would want to make sure that people realize is that they are susceptible and that the risks are severe. Uh, if, if you think about it, there are lots of uh, models on the internet that just, and when I'm talking about models, I don't just mean curves, I mean depictions, whether, whether people use dominoes or dots or ping pong balls bouncing into each other. But, but all I would urge someone to do is look, look, look at the media and find the stories about what happens when one party occurs. 
and suddenly seven or eight family members leave and they're sick. And those family members have gone out, they've left that party, and they've had contact with two or three people each. And it doesn't take a mathematician to do that math, that if you have a gathering of 15 people and one of them is sick, and at least half of that party, if not more, leave, having been exposed to the virus, potentially the entire party is exposed to the virus, how quickly that explodes. And that by doing what we're doing, we need to recognize that that's having some good. We're not in an explosive growth curve yet because we're going through the pain, because we're not having that party. Um, I do think it's important for people to take care of themselves. It's important for people to maintain physical distance, but find new ways to maintain social connectedness. And we're lucky, unlike in the 1918 Spanish flu, that we have the means to do that all around us. And staying socially connected and finding new ways to interact and new ways to conduct our lives while maintaining physical distance is going to be really important because the suffering people are going through now with, so, with, with physical distancing is important. When will we know when this is over and we can get back to normal or start getting back to normal? Are there models based on predictions for that? Well, here's the thing. It's such a new virus that uh, we are only watching what happens uh, with this virus by seeing other countries who are just hitting, for example, their second curves. So, for example, there are places in the world that experienced the initial wave of the epidemic. They went into severe measures to socially distance. And then when they came out, eventually they, they see a second spike. And so... While this is painful now, and I hear very frequently people say, oh, there's no way I can cut down all of my activity until August. Well, we don't know what we have to do yet because we're still monitoring the data. Stay tuned. And I, I'm sorry to keep saying that, but again, in the case of a new virus, uh, it's irresponsible to claim you know too much because it's brand new. But what I, what I can say is that the more we, we, we spread out the pain, the, the, I think the, the outward projections for future respikes will be will be dampened because um, you don't want to do, go through this and then ha have to do it again in July and then again cancel school in November when you decided to open schools up. You don't want to keep doing this. So uh, I don't have a particular marker to say this is when we'll absolutely know it's safe. What I can say is that as long as we, we continue to have new cases, we need to be vigilant. Have you had time to reflect on uh, the similarities and differences between this and the Spanish flu in terms of, I think I've read that the Spanish flu actually had more um, deaths and infections in, in the fall, like its second wave than in the first. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the things that, I, that, that happened is that in the second wave, if you, if you don't know that much about uh, immunizations, for example, and and and, um, and, and just basically, if we know a lot more about pathogens. There's a lot more you can do between waves. So, without making any promises, I mean, people are working on advanced testing and uh, antibody testing uh, wasn't necessarily available uh, at at that time. Um, and eventually, ideally, we'll have a vaccine, but that's probably a ways off, and I don't want to make an honorable projection about when that would come, but, but eventually we'll have these tools available. 
the societies that are rapidly controlling the infection are getting to uh, antibody tests, and we're working on that quickly. The faster you can get to isolate, identifying isolate cases, the faster you can, uh, you can decide who's safe to go out and use it. Um, of course, it's a resource allocation issue, and as a federal, a federal society with, with multiple uh, levels of authority, uh, figuring out that resource allocation is an important component. But what happened in 1918, for example, when people decided they were all going to go back out, you didn't necessarily have people being, being vaccinated or tested. They just went back out, and, and those who were still susceptible were still susceptible. Um, we have ways, thankfully, in, in the current era to mitigate what happens after the first first curve occurs. But it sounds like then we're going to need some antibody testing and or a vaccine before we can change or go back to, you know, our group associations? Well, I, I, th I think there are other, there are other things that we, we have working in our favor as well. Certainly, um, we, we want to be able to see um, what comes out of tests now, for example, with, with, um, with uh, plasma, uh, recovered the, 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 the blood plasma for people who've recovered, there's there are trials starting up with that. So there, there are, there, we're ramping up as a society with more reagents for doing testing. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to make predictions that we have to wait for all of that's in place. Obviously, we're working very hard. We do have herd immunity working on, on our side as well. Eventually, um, if, if we go slowly enough, enough people will have gotten exposed to the virus, been asymptomatic, asymptomatic and had mild cases without overwhelming the, the, the healthcare system, that it's potentially possible to start lifting restrictions at some point without, um, without an actual vaccine being present. Um, we have to be careful. And again, it's so new and so early in our uh, phase of the curve, and frankly, for the entire world. We've, we've, had, we've known coronavirus uh, SARS-CoV-2 in, in that form uh, for less than a year. And so a lot of this is new information, but um, we just have to keep watching and we kept, have to keep updating our models and, and using and, and letting both our predictive capacities as well as an observation of real-time data tell us when things start to turn around. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Christopher Morley. He's Upstate's Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.